Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's great to have you here this evening, because tonight we're continuing with Anne of Avonlea. Before we do that, take a moment to imagine yourself being calmer, more peaceful, and focused. Breathing steadily, allow your mind to conjure an image of what that would feel like. Maybe consider what you might be seeing, hearing, what you might be feeling that shows you are more calm, peaceful and focused. If you've managed to get there, focus in on one or two of those images or thoughts that are most prominent to you, ones that you can come back to that will put you back into this space. Try to hold on to one of these, so any time in the next few days when you need to be calmer more peaceful and focused, you can use them to help yourself get there. Last time, the Avonlea Village Improvement Society came undone at their first project. Having canvassed the village for funds for the refurbishment of the town hall, They had made all the arrangements with the contractors to undertake the job. They were then mortified to find a miscommunication had led to the building being painted a ghastly blue rather than the approved handsome green. Thankfully, the villagers weren't too upset with them, but instead felt badly for them and began being much more cooperative with their other endeavours. During November, Anne was coming home from school, contemplating how well things had been over the last few weeks, when she was met by a frantic Marilla. Dora was missing, and Davy swore he didn't know where she was. After even looking fearfully in the well, Anne found her locked in Mr. Harrison's tool shed. Dora explained that Davy had put her there, and this truth dismayed Anne. She explained later to Davy how saddened she was, not in locking Dora up, but in his telling lies. In seeing this, Davy was immediately sorry and said he didn't know that telling lies was bad. Marilla and Anne then realised 
just how much they loved little Davy, perhaps because he needed them the most. Tonight, we pick up with Anne, writing to a friend about her time as a teacher so far. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 11 Facts and Fancies Teaching is really very interesting work, wrote Anne to a Queen's Academy chum. Jane says she thinks it is monotonous, but I don't find it so. Something funny is almost sure to happen every day, and the children say such amusing things. Jane says she punishes her pupils when they make funny speeches, which is probably why she finds teaching monotonous. This afternoon, little Jimmy Andrews was trying to spell speckled and couldn't manage it. Well, he said finally, I can't spell it, but I know what it means. What? I asked. St. Clair Donald's face, miss. Sinclair is certainly very much freckled, although I try to prevent the others from commenting on it, for I was freckled once, and well do I remember it. But I don't think Sinclair minds. It was because Jimmy called him Sinclair that Sinclair pounded him on the way home from school. I heard of the pounding, but not officially, so I don't think I'll take any notice of it. Yesterday, I was trying to teach Lottie Wright to do addition. I said, if you had three candles in one hand and two in the other, how many would you have altogether? A mouthful, said Lottie. And in the nature study class, when I asked them to give me a good reason why toads shouldn't be killed, Benji Sloan gravely answered, because it would rain the next day. (laughs) It's so hard not to laugh, Stella. I have to save up all my amusement until I get home, and Marilla says it makes her nervous to hear wild shrieks of mirth proceeding from the east gable without any apparent cause. She says a man in Grafton went insane once, and that was how it began. Did you know that Thomas a Beckett was canonized as a snake? Rose Bell says he was. Also, that William Tyndale wrote the New Testament. Claude White says a glacier is a man who puts in window frames. I think the most difficult thing in teaching, as well as the most interesting, is to get the children to tell you their real thoughts about things. One stormy day last week, I gathered them around me at dinner hour and tried to get them to talk to me just as if I were one of themselves. I asked them to tell me the things they most wanted. Some of the answers were commonplace enough. Dolls, ponies, and skates. 
others were decidedly original. Hester Balter wanted to wear her Sunday dress every day and eat in the sitting room. Hannah Bell wanted to be good without having to take any trouble about it. Marjorie White, aged 10, wanted to be a widow. Questioned why, she gravely said that if you weren't married, people called you an old maid, and if you were, your husband bossed you. But if you were a widow, there'd be no danger of either. The most remarkable wish was Sally Bell's. She wanted a honeymoon. I asked her if she knew what it was, and she said she thought it was an extra nice kind of bicycle because her cousin in Montreal went on a honeymoon when he was married, and he always had the very latest in bicycles. Another day, I asked them all to tell me the naughtiest thing they had ever done. I couldn't get the older ones to do so, but the third class answered quite freely. Eliza Bell had set fire to her aunt's carded rolls. Asked if she meant to do it, she said, not altogether. She just tried a little end to see how it would burn, and the whole bundle blazed up in a jiffy. Emerson Gillis had spent 10 cents for candy when he should have put it in his missionary box. Annetta Bell's worst crime was eating some blueberries that grew in the graveyard. Willie White had slid down the sheep house roof a lot of times with his Sunday trousers on, but I was punished for it because I had to wear patched pants to Sunday school all summer, and when you're punished for a thing, you don't have to repent of it declared Willie. I wish you could see some of their compositions. So much do I wish it that I'll send you copies of some written recently. Last week, I told the fourth class I wanted them to write me letters about anything they pleased, adding by way of suggestion that they might tell me of some places they had visited or some interesting thing or person they had seen. They were to write the letters on real notepaper, seal them in an envelope, and address them to me, all without the assistance from other people. Now, last Friday morning, I found a pile of letters on my desk, and that evening I realized afresh that teaching had its pleasures as well as its pains. Those compositions would atone for much. Here is Ned Clay's address, spelling, and grammar as originally penned. Miss Teacher Shirley, Green Gables, P.E. Island, Canada, Birds. Dear Teacher, I think I will write you a composition about birds. Birds is very useful animals. My cat catches birds. His name is William, but Pa calls him Tom. He is all striped, and he got one of his ears frozen off last winter. Only for that he would be a good-looking cat. My uncle has adopted a cat. It came to his house one day and wouldn't go away, and uncle says it has forgot more than most people ever knowed. He lets it sleep on his rocking chair, 
and my aunt says he thinks more of it than he does of his own children. That is not right. We ought to be kind to cats and give them new milk, but we ought not to be better to them than our own children. This is all I can think of, so no more at present. From Edward Blake Clay. This Sinclair Donalds is, as usual, short and to the point. Sinclair never wastes words. I do not think he chose his subject or added the postscript out of malice or forethought. It's just that he has not a great deal of tact or imagination. Dear Miss Shirley, you told us to describe something strange we have seen. I will describe the Avonlea Hall. It has two doors, an inside one and an outside one. It has six windows and a chimney. It has two ends and two sides. It is painted blue. That is what makes it strange. It is built on the lower Carmody Road. It is the third most important building in Avonlea. The others are the church and the blacksmith shop. They hold debating clubs and lectures in it and concerts. Yours truly, Jacob Donnell. P.S. The hall is a very bright blue. Annetta Bell's letter was quite long, which surprised me, for writing essays is not Annetta's forte, and hers are generally as brief as Sinclair's. Annetta is a quiet little girl and a model of good behaviour, but there isn't a shadow of originality in her. Here is her letter. Dearest teacher, I think I will write you a letter to tell you how much I love you. I love you with my whole heart and soul and mind, with all there is of me to love, and I want to serve you forever. It would be my highest privilege. That is why I try so hard to be good in school and learn my lessons. You are so beautiful, my teacher. Your voice is like music, and your eyes are like pansies when the dew is on them. You are like a tall, stately queen. Your hair is like rippling gold. Anthony Pye says it is red, but you needn't pay any attention to Anthony. I have only known you for a few months, but I cannot realise that there was ever a time when I did not know you, when you had not come into my life to bless and hallow it. I will always look back to this year as the most wonderful in my life because it brought you to me. Besides, it is the year we moved to Avonlea from Newbridge. My love for you has made my life very rich and it has kept me from much harm and evil. I owe this all to you, my sweetest teacher. I shall never forget how sweet you looked the last time I saw you in that black dress with flowers in your hair. I shall see you like that forever, even when we are both old and grey. You will always be young and fair to me, dearest teacher. I'm thinking of you all the time, in the morning and at the noontide and at the twilight, 
I love when you laugh and when you sigh, even when you look disdainful. I never saw you look cross, though Anthony Pye says you always look so. But I don't wonder you look cross at him, for he deserves it. I love you in every dress. You seem more adorable in each new dress than the last. Dearest teacher, good night. The sun has set and the stars are shining. Stars that are as bright and beautiful as your eyes. I kiss your hands and face, my sweet. May God watch over you and protect you from all harm. Your affectionate pupil, Annette Bell. This extraordinary letter puzzled me not a little. I knew Annette couldn't have composed it any more than she could fly. When I went to school the next day, I took her for a walk down to the brook at recess and asked her to tell me the truth about the letter. Annette cried and fessed up freely. She said she had never written a letter and didn't know how to or what to say but there was a bundle of love letters in her mother's top bureau drawer which had been written to her by an old beau. It wasn't father, sobbed Annetta. It was someone who was studying for a minister and so he could write lovely letters. But Ma didn't marry him after all. She said she couldn't make out what he was driving at half the time. But I thought the letters were sweet and that I'd just copy things out of them here and there to write to you. I put teacher where he put lady, and I put in something of my own when I could think of it, and changed some words. I put dress in place of mood. I don't know what a mood was, but I supposed it was something to wear. I didn't suppose you knew the difference. I don't see how you found out it wasn't all mine. You must be an awful clever teacher. I told Annette it was very wrong to copy another person's letter and pass it off as her own. But I'm afraid that all Annette repented of was being found out. And I do love you, teacher, she sobbed. It was all true, even if the minister wrote it first. I do love you with all my heart. It's very difficult to scold anybody properly under such circumstances. Here is Barbara Shaw's letter. I can't reproduce the blots of the original. Dear teacher, you said we might write about a visit. I never visited but once. It was my Aunt Mary's last winter. My Aunt Mary is a very particular woman and a great housekeeper. The first night I was there, we were at tea. I knocked over a jug and broke it. Aunt Mary said she had had that jug ever since she was married and nobody had ever broken it before. When we got up, I stepped on her dress and all the gathers tore out of the skirt. The next morning when I got up, I hit the pitcher against the basin and cracked them both and I upset a cup of tea on the tablecloth at breakfast. When I was helping Aunt Mary with the dinner dishes, I dropped a china plate and it smashed. That evening I fell downstairs and sprained my ankle 
and had to stay in bed for a week. I heard Aunt Mary tell Uncle Joseph it was a mercy or I'd have broken everything in the house. When I got better, it was time to go home. I don't like visiting very much. I like going to school better, especially since I came to Avonlea. Yours respectfully, Barbara Shaw. Willie Whites began, Respected Miss, I want to tell you about my very brave aunt. She lives in Ontario, and one day she went out to the barn and saw a dog in the yard. The dog had no business there, so she got a stick and whacked him hard and drove him into the barn and shut him up. Pretty soon a man came looking for an imaginary lion. Query, did Willie mean menagerie lion? That had run away from a circus. And it turned out that the dog was a lion and my very brave aunt had drove him into the barn with a stick. It was a wonder she was not et up, but she was very brave. Emerson Gillis says if she thought it was a dog, she wasn't any braver than if it really was a dog. But Emerson is jealous because he hasn't got a brave aunt himself. Nothing but uncles. I've kept the best for last. You laugh at me because I think Paul is a genius, but I'm sure his letter will convince you that he is a very uncommon child. Paul lives away down near the shore with his grandmother, and he has no playmates no real playmates. You remember our school management professor told us that we must not have favourites among our pupils, but I can't help loving Paul Irving the best of all mine. I don't think it does any harm, though, for everybody loves Paul. Even Mrs. Lynde, who says she could never have believed she'd get so fond of a Yankee. The other boys in school like him, too. There is nothing weak about him in spite of his dreams and fancies. He can hold his own in all games. He fought St. Clair Donnell recently because St. Clair said the Union Jack was away ahead of the Stars and Stripes as a flag. The result was a drawn battle, a mutual agreement to respect each other's patriotism henceforth. St. Clair says he can hit the hardest, but Paul can hit the oftenest. Paul's letter. My dear teacher, you told us we might write you about some interesting people we knew. I think the most interesting people I know are my rock people, and I mean to tell you about them. I have never told anybody about them except grandma and father, but I would like to have you know about them because you understand things. There are a great many people who do not understand things, so there's no use in telling them. My rock people live at the shore. I used to visit them almost every evening before the winter came. Now I can't go till spring. But they will be there, for people like that never change. That is the splendid thing about them. Nora was the first one of them I got acquainted with and so I think I love her the best. She lives in Andrew's Cove, and she has black hair and black eyes, 
and she knows all about the mermaids and the water kelpies. You ought to hear the stories she can tell. Then there are the twin sailors. They don't live anywhere. They sail all the time, but they often come ashore to talk to me. They've seen everything in the world, and more than what is in the world. Do you know what happened to the youngest twin sailor once? He was sailing and sailed right into a moon glade. Moon glade is the track the moon makes on the water when it is rising from the sea, you know, teacher. Well, the youngest twin sailor sailed along the moon glade till he came right up to the moon. And there was a little golden door in the moon, and he opened it and sailed right through. He had some wonderful adventures in the moon, but it would make this letter too long to tell them. Then there is the golden lady of the cave. One day, I found a big cave down on the shore, and I went away in, and after a while, I found the golden lady. She has golden hair, right down to her feet, and her dress is all glittering and glistening like gold that is alive. And she has a golden harp and plays on it all day long. You can hear the music any time along the shore if you listen carefully, but most people would think it was only the wind among the rocks. I've never told Nora about the golden lady. I was afraid it might hurt her feelings. It even hurt her feelings if I talked too long with the twin sailors. I always met the twin sailors at the striped rocks. The youngest twin sailor is very good-tempered, but the oldest twin sailor can look dreadfully fierce at times. I have my suspicions about that oldest twin. I believe he'd be a pirate if he dared. There's really something very mysterious about him. He swore once, and I told him if he ever did it again, he needn't come ashore to talk to me, because I'd promised Grandmother I'd never associate with anybody that swore. He was pretty well scared, I can tell you, and he said if I would forgive him, he would take me to the sunset. So the next evening, when I was sitting on the striped rocks, The oldest twin came sailing over the sea in an enchanted boat, and I got in her. The boat was all pearly and rainbowy, like the inside of the mussel shells, and her sail was like moonshine. Well, we sailed right across to the sunset. Think of that, teacher. I've been in the sunset. And what do you suppose it is? The sunset is a land of all flowers. We sailed into a great garden, and the clouds are beds of flowers. We sailed into a great harbour, all the colour of gold. And I stepped right out of the boat on a big meadow, all covered with buttercups as big as roses. I stayed there for ever so long. It seemed nearly a year 
but the oldest twin says it was only a few minutes. You see, in Sunset Land, the time is ever so much longer than it is here. Your loving pupil, Paul Irving. P.S. Of course, this letter isn't really true, teacher. Chapter 11 A Jonah Day It really began the night before with a restless, wakeful vigil of grumbling toothache when Anne arose in the dull, bitter winter morning. She felt that life was flat, stale, and unprofitable. She went to school in no angelic mood. Her cheek was swollen and her face ached. The schoolroom was cold and smoky, for the fire refused to burn and the children were huddled about it in shivering groups. Anne sent them to their seats with a sharper tone than she had ever used before. Anthony Pye strutted to his with his usual impertinent swagger. She saw him whisper something to his seatmate, then glance at her with a grin. Never, so it seemed to Anne, had there been so many squeaky pencils as there were that morning. And when Barbara Shaw came up to the desk with a sum, she tripped over the coal scuttle with disastrous results. The coal rolled to every part of the room. Her slate was broken into fragments, and when she picked herself up, her face, stained with coal dust, sent the boys into roars of laughter. Anne turned from the second reader class which she was hearing. Really, Barbara, she said icily, if you cannot move without falling over something, you better remain in your seat. It is positively disgraceful for a girl of your age to be so awkward. Poor Barbara stumbled back to her seat, her tears combining with the coal dust to produce an effect truly grotesque. Never before had her beloved, sympathetic teacher spoken to her in such a tone or fashion, and Barbara was heartbroken. Anne herself felt a prick of conscience, but it only served to increase her mental irritation, and the second reader class remember that lesson yet as well as the unmerciful infliction of arithmetic that followed. Just as Anne was snapping the sums out, St. Clair Donnell arrived, breathlessly. You are half an hour late, St. Clair, Anne reminded him frigidly. Why is this? Please, miss, I had to help Ma make a pudding for dinner, because we're expecting company, and Clarice Almira is sick was Sinclair's answer, given in a perfectly respectable voice, but nevertheless provocative of great mirth among his mates. Take your seat and work out the six problems on page 84 of your arithmetic for punishment, said Anne. Sinclair looked rather amazed at her tone, but he went meekly to his desk and took out his slate. 
Then he stealthily passed a small parcel to Joe Sloan across the aisle. Anne caught him in the act and jumped to a fatal conclusion about that parcel. Old Mrs. Hiram Sloan had lately taken to making and selling nut cakes by way of adding to her scanty income. The cakes were specially tempting to small boys, and for several weeks, Anne had not a little trouble in regard to them. On their way to school, the boys would invest their spare cash at Mrs. Hiram's, bring the cakes along with them to school, and, if possible, eat them and treat their mates during school hours. Anne had warned them that if they brought any more cakes to school, they would be confiscated. And yet here was St. Clair Donnell, coolly passing a parcel of them, wrapped up in the blue and white striped paper Mrs. Hiram used under her very eyes. Joseph, said Anne quietly, bring that parcel here. Joe, startled and abashed, obeyed. He always blushed and stuttered when he was frightened. Never did anybody look more guilty than poor Joe at that moment. Throw it into the fire, said Anne. Joe looked very blank. Please, miss, he began. Do as I tell you, Joseph, without any words about it. But, miss, there gasped Joe in desperation. Joseph, are you going to obey me, or are you not? said Anne. A bolder and more self-possessed lad than Joe Sloan would have been overawed by her tone and the dangerous flash of her eyes. This was a new Anne, whom none of her pupils had ever seen before. Joe, with an agonized glance at St. Clair, went to the stove, opened the big, square front door, and threw the blue and white parcel in, before St. Clair, who had sprung to his feet, could utter a word. Then he dodged back just in time. For a few moments, the terrified occupants of Avonlea School did not know whether it was an earthquake or a volcanic explosion that had occurred. The innocent-looking parcel, which Anne had rashly supposed to contain Mrs. Hiram's nutcakes, really held an assortment of firecrackers and pinwheels for which Warren Sloan had sent to town by St. Clair Donald's father the day before, intending to have a birthday celebration that evening. The crackers went off in a thunderclap of noise, and the pinwheels, bursting out of the door, spun madly around the room, hissing and spluttering. Anne dropped into her chair, white with dismay, and all the girls climbed, shrieking upon their desks. Joe Sloane stood as one transfixed in the midst of the commotion, and St. Clair hapless with laughter, rocked to and fro in the aisle. Prilly Rogerson fainted, and Annetta Bell went into hysterics. It seemed a long time, though really it was only a few minutes, before the last pinwheel subsided 
Anne, recovering herself, sprang to open doors and windows and let out the gas and smoke which filled the rooms. Then she helped the girls carry the unconscious Prilly into the porch, where Barbara Shaw, in agony of desire to be useful, poured a pailful of half-frozen water over Prilly's face and shoulders before anyone could stop her. It was a full hour before quiet was restored, but it was a quiet that might be felt. Everybody realised that even the explosion had not cleared the teacher's mental atmosphere. Nobody except Anthony Pye dared whisper a word. Ned Clay accidentally squeaked his pencil while working a sum, caught Anne's eye, and wished the floor would open and swallow him up. The geography class were whisked through a continent with speed that made them dizzy. Their grammar class were passed and analysed within an inch of their lives. Chester Sloan, spelling odoriferous with two Fs, was made to feel that he could never live down the disgrace of it, either in this world or that which is to come. Anne knew that she had made herself ridiculous and that the incident would be laughed over that night at a score of tea tables. But that knowledge only angered her further. In a calmer mood, she could have carried off the situation with a laugh, but now that was impossible, so she ignored it in icy disdain. When Anne returned to the school after dinner, all the children were, as usual, in their seats, and every face was bent studiously over a desk, except Anthony Pye's. He peered across his book at Anne, his black eyes sparkling with curiosity and mockery. Anne twitched open the drawer of her desk in search of chalk, and under her very hand, a lively mouse sprang out of the drawer, scampered over the desk, and leapt to the floor. Anne screamed and sprang back as if it had been a snake, and Anthony Pye laughed aloud. Then a silence fell, a very creepy, uncomfortable silence. Annetta Bell was of two minds whether to go into hysterics again, especially as she didn't know just where the mouse had gone, but she decided not to. Who could take any comfort out of hysterics with a teacher so white-faced and so blazing-eyed standing before one? Who put that mouse in my desk? said Anne. Her voice was quite low, but it made a shiver go up and down Paul Irving's spine. Joe Sloan caught her eye, felt responsible from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, but stuttered out wildly. Not, not, not me. Anne paid no attention to the wretched Joseph. She looked at Anthony Pye, and Anthony Pye looked back, unabashed and unashamed. Anthony, was it you? Yes, 
it was, said Anthony insolently. Anne took her pointer from her desk. It was long, heavy, hardwood pointer. Come here, Anthony. It was far from being the most severe punishment Anthony Pye had ever undergone. Anne, even the stormy-souled Anne she was at that moment, could not have punished any child cruelly. But the pointer nipped keenly, and finally Anthony's bravado failed him. He winced, and the tears came to his eyes. Anne, conscience-stricken, dropped the pointer and told Anthony to go to his seat. She sat down at her desk, feeling ashamed, repentant, and bitterly mortified. Her quick anger was gone, and she would have given much to be able to seek relief in tears. So all her boasts had come to this. She had actually whipped one of her pupils. How Jane would triumph, and how Mr. Harrison would chuckle. But worse than this, bitterest thought of all, she had lost her last chance of winning Anthony Pye. Never would he like her now. Anne, by what somebody has called a Herculaneum effort, kept back her tears until she got home that night. Then she shut herself in the East Gable room and wept all her shame and remorse and disappointment into her pillows. Wept so long that Marilla grew alarmed, invaded the room, and insisted on knowing what the trouble was. The trouble is, I've got things the matter with my conscience, sobbed Anne. Oh, this has been such a Jonah day, Marilla. I'm so ashamed of myself. I lost my temper and whipped Anthony Pye. I'm glad to hear it, said Marilla with decision. It's what you should have done a long time ago. Oh, no, no, Marilla. I don't see how I could ever look those children in the face again. I feel that I have humiliated myself to the very dust. You don't know how cross and hateful and horrid I was. I can't forget the expression in Paul Irving's eyes. He looked so surprised and disappointed. Oh, Marilla, I've tried so hard to be patient and to win Anthony's liking. Now it's all gone to nothing. Marilla passed her hard, work-worn hand over the girl's glossy, tumbled hair with a wonderful tenderness. When Anne's sobs grew quieter, she said, very gently for her, You take things too much to heart, Anne. We all make mistakes. People forget them. Jonah days come to everybody. As for Anthony Pye, why need you care if he does dislike you? He's the only one. I can't help it. I want everybody to love me and it hurts me so when anybody doesn't. Anthony never will now. 
Oh, I just made an idiot of myself today, Marilla. I'll tell you the whole story. Marilla listened to the whole story, and if she smiled at certain parts of it, Anne never knew. When the tale was ended, she said briskly, Well, never mind. The day's done, and there's a new one coming tomorrow with no mistakes in it yet, as you used to say yourself. Just come downstairs and have your supper. You see if a good cup of tea and those plum puffs I made earlier won't hearten you up. Plum puffs won't minister to a mind diseased, said Anne disconsolately. But Marilla thought it a good sign that she had recovered sufficiently to adapt a quotation. The cheerful supper table with the twins' bright faces and Marilla's matchless plum puffs, of which Davy ate four, did hearten her up considerably after all. She had a good sleep that night and awakened in the morning to find herself and the world transformed. It had snowed softly and thickly all through the hours of darkness and the beautiful whiteness glittering in the frosty sunshine looked like a mantle of charity cast over all the mistakes and humiliations of the past. Every morn is a fresh beginning. Every morn is the world made new, sang Anne as she dressed. Owing to the snow, she had to go around by the road to school. She thought it was certainly an impish coincidence that Anthony Pye should come ploughing along just as she left the Green Gables Lane. She felt as guilty as if their positions were reversed, but to her unspeakable astonishment, Anthony not only lifted his cap, which he had never done before, but said easily, Kind of bad walking, isn't it? Can I take those books for you, teacher? Anne surrendered her books and wondered if she could possibly be awake. Anthony walked on in silence to the school, but when Anne took her books, she smiled down at him. Not the stereotyped, kind smile she had so persistently assumed for his benefit, but a sudden outflashing of good comradeship. Anthony smiled. No, if truth be told, Anthony grinned back. A grin is not generally supposed to be a respectful thing. Yet Anne suddenly felt that if she had not yet won Anthony's liking, she had, somehow or other, won his respect. Mrs. Rachel Lynde came up the next Saturday and confirmed this. Well, Anne, I guess you've won over Anthony Pye, that's what. He says he believes you are some good after all, even if you are a girl. Says that whipping you gave him was just as good as a man's. I never expected to win him by whipping, though, said Anne a little mournfully, feeling that her ideals had played her false somewhere. Doesn't seem right. Sure, my theory of kindness can't be wrong. 
No, but the pies are an exception to every known rule, that's what, declared Mrs. Rachel with conviction. Mr. Harrison said, Thought you'd come to it, when he heard it. And Jane rubbed it in rather unmercifully. 